You're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations, all while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. Now here's your host, Robin Waite. Welcome back, everybody. It's the next episode of the Fearless Business Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Waite, the Fearless Business Coach. I've got a fantastic guest with me today, all the way from Maryland in the US uh, US of A. Uh, it's David Shah, founder of Illuminate PMC. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, thanks so much, Robin. So glad to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. So David is a keynote speaker, he's a consultant, a trainer specializing in helping organizations to improve their leadership and culture, combat burnout and design meaningful work. So it sounds like you cover, you have a great amount of expertise. You cover um, a lot of amazing subjects, which I'm really uh, excited to be talking about over the next sort of 30 or 40 minutes, David. Um, well, let's get straight into it. So like I'd imagine during, uh, you know, be, um, uh, dismal of us not to give a bit of a nod to the current crisis, but I'd imagine that sort of um, people's uh, enthusiasm around work has changed quite dramatically over the last sort of six months or so. So with some of that leading to mental health breakdowns and potentially employee burnout and things like that. So let's dig into it. What is employee burnout? Yeah, so I think you're I think you're dead on. Uh, unfortunately, um, my work has become a lot more popular recently uh, because with with. 2020, COVID-19, all the other things that have come with um, 2020. It started with like the wildfires in, in Australia. Now we've got them in America too, on the West Coast and uh, COVID and the death of George Floyd, which sort of sparked um, change around the world, which, which was really inspiring to see. But with all of that, people are feeling very um, helpless, very lost. Um, and that's really at the core of burnout. Burnout um, has three parts to it uh, um, traditionally, and those are emotional exhaustion, uh, cynicism, and a decreased sense of personal accomplishment, either real or imagined. And when you look at that through the scope of 2020, um, I think we are all emotionally exhausted. Um, we, we are all feeling very cynical about our work, about our careers. There's so many people, I'm getting so many phone calls from people who are like, uh, I need a new path. I need, I need help finding a new way. And that's not even what I do professionally, but people are reaching out to me. And it's because so many of us feel lost and cynical about the things that we used to know as our reality that suddenly uh, were flipped on their head. And then the lack of personal accomplishment, that could be real or imagined. Um, but in this case, I think it is very real. We're churning our wheels and working twice as hard for the same result if we're lucky. You know, suddenly my wife just went back to school as a educator. Um, and I and I had the opportunity to speak to um, teachers often as they're going back to school now, especially. And what you see is, OK, we want you to do the same great job that you've always done. But now we want you to keep a mask on your first graders and we want you to keep six feet away from them. And we're going to put up plastic barriers and 
and and things like that. And and it and it really creates this dynamic where we are working twice as hard and getting half as much out of it. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I talk about something called emotional trauma, which is part of that sort of burnout process. And and trauma is something which you can either have like a car crash and get traumatized straight away, or you have, especially when it comes to emotional trauma, it tends to have this very gradual sort of buildup, a bit like sleep debt. You don't know that you're you're absolutely physically exhausted until one day you just pass out and you know and and can't kind of cope with it anymore. And, right. and I think through, through you know, the COVID, I think that um, people have just allowed, we've tried to kind of be very stoic and continue like business as usual. And we're not paying attention to those little sort of early warning signs. So I'm guessing like you probably see it quite often, especially in the workplace, um, you know, with your sorts of clients, like what are some of those early warning signs that we can start to look out for that, uh, you know, uh, of, for, of, of an employee about to sort of burn out? Yeah, I think I think those three things are really big where you start seeing uh, cynicism uh, and you start seeing withdrawal. So people start pulling back from their work. Um, and and that uh, so what a business sees often is increased turnover um, at a wider level. But when an individual is experiencing burnout, oftentimes they can come out as physical symptoms. So you start getting a lot of sick days um, and it's not just like mental health days. It's actual sick days. People start um, getting actual physical symptoms that come from all of the all of the stress related to burnout. Um, you see things like people starting to become very distant um, and and uh, maybe they complain more or maybe they just pull back more. Um, burnout certainly is something that is contagious. So when you have a couple people that are suddenly, you know, disillusioned and pulling away from their work, that starts to uh, spread to coworkers. Um, And it also becomes very transparent with your clients or customers uh, because part of that process is pulling away from those people and putting up barriers. The cynicism part, or sometimes known as depersonalization um, in those those human-facing moments, that part of it is um, really, um, uh, really sort of toxic because what you're doing is you are putting up barriers. It's self-protective. You're putting up barriers to protect yourself as you become burnt out. But what those barriers are doing is you start pulling away. So teachers start pulling away from their students. Nurses start pulling away from their, from their patients. I remember, um, remember, I've got a 10-month-old at home. And when he was just born, he had to be rushed to the um, NICU, the, the ICU um, for the natal, whatever it is, the neonatal ICU, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, and he was, he was rushed to the intensive care unit and the nurses and doctors would just come through like it was business as usual without any of that emotional connection. And a big piece of that is it's just another day on the job, but that's not why they got into nursing. That's not why they got into, into medicine. They they got into it to be there for my son, for my wife and I in this traumatic experience. But in order to protect themselves, they start pulling away and start. It, it, it becomes very black and white and, and not connecting 
um, with the patients and the families that they're there to connect with. And, and it's made all the, the harder when you've got a, a mask, which you've got to kind of hide behind. So you can't even see if somebody, you can see their eyes, but you can't see if they're smiling or not and things like that. Yeah. You know, so, so there's some tangible kind of um, signals that are going out there in terms of like sick days and things like that. But when it gets to kind of that, um, you know, stepping back, the depersonalization, that's much more intangible. You've got to be very good at kind of reading people in order to kind of spot those sort of warning signs so now we yes. started to build up this sort of bank of warning signs and we spotted that oh robin's getting a bit withdrawn we can see he's a bit tired and he's starting to take a few more sick days um how how the business and approach starting to kind of address that and kind of get me a bit more re-energized and back to work yeah so i think you really need to understand where it's coming from and when you talk about burnout and these three main symptoms of burnout uh, there's a there's a great model called the demand control support model, popular model because it's a very simple model. And and what that argues is when does burnout occur? It occurs when de- there's an increase in demand and a decrease in a sense of control and a decrease in a sense of support. When you look at that through the framework of what we're going through right now, I mean, this this is the life we're living right now, right? So we have increased demand. And when I say demand, so if you've ever worked in a restaurant, I was talking to restaurateurs the other day about um, their experience working in a restaurant. And when we talk about demand, when if you've ever worked a busy shift in a restaurant and you're like dishes are flying and you've got 14 different customers ordering things and sometimes you can just enter that state of flow And people describe themselves in those instances, not as burnt out, but fired up. Like they are ignited in those instances. So demand itself is not burnout. A busy hospital ward is not, it does not necessarily translate into burnout for a nurse or doctor that could actually ignite them. So what does demand mean? It means all of the obstacles that stand in the way of what you do um, so I, my research is in the connection between meaningful work and burnout. Why, um, why are the most objectively meaningful jobs, the teachers, the nurses, um, the lawyers, things where you can really connect with clients, patients, students, why are those jobs the ones that have the greatest amount of burnout? What is it that, that causes that, that burnout? What type of demand causes that burnout? I would I would argue that it's the bureaucracy, the interpersonal conflict, the things that stand in the way, the barriers that are arisen between us and the work that we are there to do. And that is why the most meaningful job. So people who enter their career thinking I'm going to make a difference. Those are the ones that are then met with red tape and bureaucracy and interpersonal conflict. And suddenly they're they're trying to make a difference while two hands are tied behind their back. Yeah, there's a great book actually um, called um, Black Box Thinking by an author called um, Matthew Said. I don't know if you've ever come across it. If you haven't, you would absolutely love it. So Black Box Thinking by Matthew Said. So he talks about this idea that, um, you know, imagine if everybody covered up, like if there's a plane crash, imagine if they covered up the reasons why the planes crash. So you've got the Boeing, um, uh, was it the 737, the new one, which they've just created where two there were two crashes and they've had to ground the fleet and they're, they're going digging into the black box data to work out why those planes crashed to avoid any future crashes. And right. so there's this whole notion, you're talking about kind of the public sector here. So, you know, nurses, doctors, surgeons, and people like that. Matthew side talks about this. Or one of the examples he uses is, is, is the surgeon where, um, 
that essentially um, the, the woman who kind of day-to-day sort of uh, piece of surgery that they were doing, operation, uh, she ends up dying because a couple of two complications happened in the operation. And then the surgeons start to kind of um, cover it up. But then the nurse comes in, she's like, well, no, I think we could have avoided this if we'd actually talked about it and discussed it. And so, you know, like you said, you've got to unshackle, like you know, allow people to make mistakes in order to get the most out of them. And actually, in doing so, you can help to save more lives further down the line. Right. And that's, and that's another piece of the demand control support. It's the control part, right? And that's, and that's that piece where we start losing this sense of control. If we start losing a sense of control, we, we no longer have decision authority specifically, right? We, we no longer have the authority to make decisions. And often, you know, in manufacturing jobs and things like that, traditionally, people never had that decision authority. Now we're learning that if you put teams together and have them come up with solutions, the your frontline workers, it makes a huge difference um, in their engagement, which you might argue is is kind of the opposite of burnout. But when you look at our current situation with demand, so now we've got all these obstacles up, control, we have never felt less in control. So one of the leading precursors to depression is learned helplessness. And what learned helplessness basically is, is that we put in effort and our effort never seems to connect with the end goal. So we start feeling like this, this lack of sense of control over our own destiny. And especially for your audience where they are solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, consultants, coaches, these are people who have taken the wheel and decided to drive their own destiny. They decide they're not relying on some uh, corporation or boss or, or biweekly paycheck. They've decided that they're going to do it. And then COVID comes around and suddenly it's like, mm, you think you're going to do it or you think you're going to do it that way. Well, try it now. And suddenly their clients are canceling contracts. They can't meet them uh, face to face. They're, they're, they're facing so many obstacles and they lose a sense of control. Everything that they did now has to be done differently. And they lose a sense of control over their lives. And that is incredibly damaging and incredibly stressful. And then the final piece of this lack of support, I don't know about you, but when I get stressed, even at 40 years old, I want to go hug my mom. Maybe, <laughs> you know, yeah, but I, but I can't man. do that <laughs> because she die. You know, <laughs> so it's so it's a horrible situation where you have the perfect recipe for burnout right now because of because of COVID. Well, I, I have to admit, we have. Um, so I, I deal with a lot of the practical, tactical stuff at Fearless Business uh, HQ. And um, uh, earlier on this year, I brought in a mindset coach who kind of does a weekly call as well. And I was so pleased to see that throughout lockdown, she was the, her call was like vastly oversubscribed and people kind of stopped showing up to my call. And I was like, great, you know, if that's the help that people need, then, right. you know, it's perfect. And she was a godsend during everything that's been kind of going on. So um, one thing which was really interesting though, was kind of um, which you've touched upon there is like a lot of our um, you know the coaches consultants freelancers have taken that leap of faith to leave corporate and set up their own business and um, they have to find this like I think you call it the deeper meaning of work like what's their calling and sometimes I think that can also be quite 
they think they know what it is, but it can still be quite hard to find. So have you got any tips for people who are still kind of like, oh, I'm having a bit of a wobble. I'm not really sure if this is what I really signed up for. Right. Yeah. So I think at times like these, it's very, it's very easy to start questioning everything and to start second guessing yourself. But you have to understand the moment that you're in. And as they say, this too shall pass. Um, but I think um, so one, one week, I decided to fill my calendar and it sounds like the start of a bad joke, but I met with a priest, a pastor, a rabbi, and an imam all separately. And I said, what's the purpose? And they said, what do you, what do you mean? What's the purpose? What is an individual's purpose? And I wanted to understand this through their eyes, because if anybody spends time thinking about these things, it should be clergy. And so what is our purpose? And it was so interesting because across the spectrum, they all described to me this sense of us as individuals having individual mission, right? And what was what was even more interesting to me um, was that many of them described this mission as something that you have to look at your natural talents and abilities, and your natural the 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 um, uh, all of the all of the events that happened in your life, right? So your, your abilities that you're born with, as well as all of the things, all of the um, circumstances in your life, and you have to figure it out for yourself. Nobody is going to tell you your mission, but you have a very specific mission. And so when we talk about purpose, we talk about, in this sense, we talk about being true to that individual mission while engaging with other people with complementary missions and having a greater impact on the world. And when I hear that, I think of work, right? We come together as specialists, or even if we're generalists, we specialize in certain things. We have certain personality traits and, and skill sets. So we come together with a diverse groups of people to magnify our impact. As one person told me, um, he said, I think it was uh, the priest told me, he said, he said, you, if you're the heart, be the heart. Don't try to be the brain. But the heart doesn't function without the brain. You know, so you need okay. to partner with the right people. And I think that that is that that is who you are. I can tell you a quick story. So um, my wife, um, you know, most of what I learned is not from clergy or even scientists. Most of what I learned is from my kids, honestly. And <laughs> one, uh, one day, a few years ago, my wife was driving home. At the time, I had a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And they're driving home from visiting my in-laws. And it's late at night. And my five-year-old is sitting in the middle seat, looking out the window. My three-year-old's in the way back, where everyone assumed she was sleeping. Car is dark. They're driving. My, my son speaks up. At, the, the car is silent. He just speaks up and says, hey, mom, what's the purpose of deer? Because he's looking out the window and he sees a herd of deer. So she does the typical mom answer, flips it back on him and says, I don't know, son, what do you think the purpose of deer is? And they go back and forth. What do you think the purpose of deer is? Is it to add grace and beauty to the world? Is it to feed the foxes? I think that was one of my son's ideas, you know, and, and they go back and forth and then the car goes quiet again. And then from the very back seat where they thought she was sleeping, my three-year-old says, mommy, what's my purpose? 
And so my wife's mind starts spinning a million miles an hour. She's thinking, is she going to be the the uh, next president of the United States, the first female president of the United States? Is she going to uh, create the next Facebook? Is she going to find the cure for cancer? What is her purpose? And before she can utter a response, my five-year-old says, Rena, that's my that's my daughter's name. Rena, that's easy. Your joy. That's your purpose. You make people happy. And I think we develop this mindset where to live a purposeful life, you need to make it to the cover of Time magazine. Right. So to live a purposeful life, you need the celebrity status. And if you don't hit it, good luck next time. It's so vain, though, isn't it? Yeah. And what we understand as kids is that that's not what a purposeful life is. And what a purposeful life is, which my five-year-old understood, is to have an impact by being your authentic self and doing what only you can do, being the best version of you, impacting those around you, and that having that butterfly effect and impacting the world. When you when you are working with coaches and consultants, they left the corporate world. A lot of them must have left like I did management where you are where you are looking over and directly impacting this group of frontline workers. And they went into a profession where they can actually have a much greater impact. But it's about that butterfly effect. It's about impacting a couple of these other leaders of organizations and people in different organizations and seeing it just spread from there. And that's that I think is meaningful work. That is that is what what our purpose is about. Well, I think this is where most employees actually get this wrong as well, because they're so busy. You know, you see some jobs that have been applied for um, sort of recently where you've had like a thousand applicants for a job and they're really struggling to kind of whittle it down. And kind of the first thing they look at is, you know, what certifications do they have? Which university did they go to? What level degree did they get? And you kind of like, you know, actually it kind of, you don't want to look at that and go, oh, great, they're good at maths. You actually want to look at it and go, actually, this person can solve meaningful problems that are going to change the world. And if they can do that, that's much a much better quali- uh, quality to kind of hire upon. Um, so, and I think this is where like so many employees get this whole hiring thing wrong. And then they're actually, what they don't realize is they're actually contributing to their employees like dissatisfaction and sadness in the workplace. So like, how, how, can, how can employees actually hire better? Right. So it's a great question. When people um, come to me with help with burnout, they're often surprised that they think my job is to go in and just motivate and tell people, yeah, believe in your job and believe in yourself. And I certainly do a good portion of my of my career is standing on stages and motivating people. But it's about so much more. It's about the tactical aspect. And what I do when I'm consulting I go into organizations and touch every aspect of the employee life cycle. And people are like, well, aren't you the burnout guy? Yes, burnout starts with selection and ends with retirement. You know, this is, <laughs> this is really what it is. If you're not getting the right people into the organization from the beginning, then you are setting yourself up for burnout. So my model is the FTF burnout proof culture model, where it starts with Well, step three is selection, right? So why is selection so important? It's because when, if you're getting people who don't match the organizational fit, 
right? They don't fit the organization, the culture. They don't have shared values. Then there's going to be a disconnect. And how are they ever supposed to feel like they're, they're fulfilling their purpose at work? When, when interviewing so often, um, I think the, the primary mistake that, that, that uh, employers and HR professionals, et cetera, make when they're selecting employees is they over-rely on, um, on the unstructured interview. Right. So this unstructured interview is this concept that somebody comes in and you have a chat and you get to like a get to know you and you're like, yep, you're hired and you don't dig deeper. And most most professionals that I speak to, they all tell me, well, I'm a great judge of character as I'm in their organizations, helping them fix the problems that came from hiring the wrong people. So, but they're all great judges of character. It's okay. You can be a great judge of character, but the difference between a structured interview, using personality profiles, using uh, cognitive ability tests, using, um, you, you know, uh, asking questions that really dig deep into the person's um, set of values, right? Without doing those, and you're doing an unstructured interview, I like to I like to tell people about how um, I feel like I'm a great judge of character, but I have never had a roommate that I'm still friends with besides my wife. She and I get along, but <laughs> but why? Because with my roommates, I thought, hmm, well. I like them. They're cool. We get along. We like to hang out together. Those aren't the right questions for a roommate. Those are part of it. But the right questions for a roommate are, do you pay your bills on time? Do you wash your dishes? Do you clean up after yourself? Do you party late at night? Those are the relevant questions. And so when we're interviewing people or going through the selection process and we're just relying on, hey, do I get along with this person? One of the primary problems is, what does that mean for how they're going to fit in with the job and with the organization? The other problem, by the way, is that we tend to have much more in common with people who are like us and people who look like us and people who have similar backgrounds to us. So uh, oftentimes people will select um, based on these unstructured interviews and one day they'll look around and say, whoa, everybody looks like me. And uh, on a societal basis, that's a problem, right? And a legal basis, that could be a problem for you. But at the same time, something that's often overlooked is that as an organization, that's a problem for you. Because if one day you turn around and see that everybody looks like you, you probably can turn around and look like, and, and also notice that everybody thinks like you if you're hiring that way and not being cognizant it, about bringing that, in diversity. It, it is that diversity is so important because otherwise, imagine if you had a board, like just for ideas, like um, a board with 10 members on it and they're all white, middle-aged, male and stale, and you ask them to solve a problem, they're probably gonna come up like 10, 10 solutions to a problem they'll probably all come up with the same 10 solutions whereas if right. you have somebody who is um you know maybe um black or uh, you know ethnic minority minorities or different backgrounds uh gender diversity um sexual persuasion or whatever it might be um you've got 10 different completely different people you'll end up with 10 completely different answers from 10 people you'll end up with 100 solutions not just 10 of the same right so that level of diversity there is i know i'm not i know i'm not particularly eloquent at kind of talking about this necessarily um but that that level of diversity is is actually really good for business because it just adds to the volume of creativity you can kind of get out of the business Yes. And I, I would give one caveat, especially when we're talking about meaningful work and burnout. 
what often happens is that we select people in and then uh, there's attrition, right? So they, they either deselect themselves or we then select them out because oftentimes we hear, oh, diversity is good for business or you're going to look bad if you don't have diversity or whatever it is. So we're like, oh, that person has darker skin than me. Let's bring them in. That's not what diversity is. And if you bring people in based on diversity at a surface level only, by the way, because there's deep level diversity and surface level diversity, deep level diversity means that they actually think different than you because of different experiences, upbringings and things like that. Right. So when we talk about diversity, um, you're not talking about bringing people in who look just like you, but have a different skin tone. You're talking about welcoming in diverse opinions and then welcoming those opinions and and reaching out for those opinions. So what often happens is we will reach out and create a more diverse workforce by bringing in diversity. And then those people who have diverse viewpoints don't get a say. We don't listen to their voice. We don't give them a voice. Instead, we want them to conform directly into the company culture. And and it's a it's a you know, uh, sort of a balancing act. How do you maintain a culture and an identity and values while also bringing in diversity and diverse in terms of diverse opinions in your culture? But I would argue that has to be part of your culture, has to be that diversity. And if your culture is completely stagnant, if you just stay the way you are, good luck to you because you will not survive a moment in this VUCA world, right? We talk about volatile, uncertain um, world that we live in. Um, if you're bringing people in and with diverse opinions and then not valuing those diverse opinions, you have done nothing except for probably increased your disengagement, increased the burnout. Motivate them, that's for sure. It, exactly. And then they don't have a voice and then they leave. It was really interesting. I, I um, heard a story about somebody who was um, interviewing just in a small business. And one of the things which they did was they... Um, they set it up. So it's part about diversity, more so about inclusion, but they midway through the interview, they kind of purposefully ran out of coffee. So they, Uh, they, they told the interviewer uh, interviewee to, um, you know, go down the hall and go to the the rest of the break room and um, breakout room and go and grab a couple of coffees, told them what they wanted. And then in the breakout room, they'd gone and set up like, so in the kitchen, they'd set up like um, various different scenarios of like a couple of people arguing, somebody having a bit of a breakdown, the principal, wasn't working things like this so just general day-to-day office stuff and um they then just watched to see how they would in- either just walk down there get the coffee and come back and ignore all the problems or whether they'd actually like you know and the person they hired sort of broke up the argument you know consoled the person the girl who was crying in the corner and and stopped to fix the printer and kind of 15 minutes later ends up going back to the interview room and they're like where have you been we just told you to go and get coffee and he's like well there was all these problems i just thought i'd help out so they hired that person, <laughs> you know, which I think is great because it just shows that like, you know, if you can see those open, generous sort of characters, they're going to fit in much. But you, I always say you can train skills, but you can't train like um, how people just are. <laughs> right. Right. And but but I think the problem starts even before the person comes in for the interview. I think we're very bad 
at understanding what exactly the job requires and exactly who we are as an organization. How are you going to figure out if somebody fits into your organization or if they'll be successful in the job role if you don't understand what those things entail? If you don't know who you are as an organization, good luck hiring somebody who fits your organization. And if you don't know what the job actually entails, if you haven't really dug deep into what makes a successful candidate for that job, how do you how do you know? You might be making crazy guesses that extroverts make the best salespeople when some research shows that maybe introverts make better salespeople. If so, it relates to the target audience, then, <laughs> you know, if the target market is, is, is introverts, you want introverts selling to introverts. You don't want people who are like polarized and, you know, going to come at each other from different angles. Right. So why, so, so how are you, how are you deciding on the right person for the job when you haven't really done the footwork beforehand to figure out who would be the best person for the job. And we do it with, with uh, promotion as well. You know, the Peter principle is this idea that we promote people to their level of incompetence. So you have somebody who is a great salesperson and you're like, you're my best sales guy. Now we're making you sales manager without stopping to think like, okay, so maybe, and I'm just going out on a limb here, but maybe a great salesperson is somebody who's competitive, who's a lone wolf, who's going to go out there. And maybe that's what makes your best salesperson your best salesperson. But a great sales manager is maybe more of a team player and somebody who collaborates and, and, and things like that. And so what happens when you take that leading salesperson and, and make them a sales manager just because they're the best performer? Not only do you lose your greatest salesperson in the process, you gain a crappy sales manager in the process as well. So you're, you're really, you're really um, uh, stabbing yourself in the back twice. It's, it's really unfortunate. We really need to be more cognizant on the front end with, with everything we do in business. hundred percent. Uh, listen, we, um, I want to get to know the, uh, David uh, for, sort of towards the back end of this interview, if that's okay. So how did, how did you get into kind of speaking, coaching and, and that side of things? So I have a really interesting journey. So um, it actually starts with ice cream. Uh, so I had an ice the cream best parlor. Things always start with ice cream. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> so I had, I had an ice cream parlor in Baltimore City. Um, so I don't know if if you guys um, are big on The Wire. It was like a '90s show on HBO. I think yep. '90s. Um, and it was very gritty, it was filled with all the crime and, and uh, corruption in Baltimore and very accurate to some areas of Baltimore. Um, so my ice cream shop was right in Baltimore City. Um, it's very high end um, uh, area, but only blocks away from the projects, from neighborhoods where uh, people from very disadvantaged uh, homes and communities lived. And so the people who lived right by my ice cream shop, a lot of my customers, they didn't have kids or want their kids working as ice cream scoopers for minimum wage. So I drew most of my employees from those rougher parts of town. And so at the time I was this young entrepreneur, I thought I was getting in the ice cream business, but I realized that I was in so much more. Um, when the first time I looked at my crew and I'm like, whoa, the leadership is about so much more than just managing the processes. It's about leading the people. And it didn't really, so Mark Twain says the most important, the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. So a couple months into owning my ice cream parlor, 
uh, one of my employees, this young, I think she was like 17 at the time, 17 year old young lady came to work. I knew that her boyfriend was involved with a gang in the city. Um, a lot of these kids came from very rough uh, surroundings. Uh, her boyfriend was involved in a gang. She came in one day. She was always so cheery and and uh, and fun. And she seemed very down this day. So I approached her and I said, what's going on? And she um, broke down in tears and explained to me that her boyfriend had been shot multiple times and left for dead that morning. They had flown him by helicopter to the hospital uh, where things didn't look good. So I said, whoa, go, leave, go. And she said, what do you mean? I can't leave. I said, I said, I know money's tight. I'll pay you for the, for the day. I will personally cover your shift. Some things in life are bigger than ice cream. Yeah. This will be one of them. You got to go, be with family, be with wherever you need to be. And she said, no, I'm not leaving. I said, I'm serious, go. And she stopped and she looked me dead in the eye and she said, I can't go. I need to be here. I can only be here. This is my happy place. This was a kid, 17 years old, from the projects of Baltimore City, who doesn't, wouldn't rather be with her family, wouldn't rather be at the mall with her friends, wouldn't rather be anywhere else in the world when trauma hit. She wanted to be here because this was the place where she felt safe, where she felt that she had purpose where she didn't outside, where the world made sense, this was it. And so I immediately started thinking, wow, what did I accidentally, and believe me, I, I stumbled into it. What did I accidentally create here? And why do my friends who are doctors and nurses and lawyers and accountants with these high paying and meaningful, objectively meaningful jobs why do they hate getting up to go to work on Monday? And this girl, all she wants to do is be here. And all of these kids, they would show up in my ice cream shop and not leave. Well, on days that they didn't work, they would, they would come and set up in the back. And when there was a line, they'd jump up to help their friends and customers. It was unbelievable. What was the difference? And I think the difference is that these kids, what I was actively doing was helping them find meaning in scooping ice cream. Yeah. Because there is meaning in that. It's show me a business that doesn't provide some sort of um, service, make the world have some sort of positive impact on the world, and I'll show you a bankrupt business. Every business needs to provide a service. Otherwise, it's not a business. And so how do we connect with those things? And that's the key to it all. So I learned it in the School of Hard Knocks, and then my curiosity took over, and it went from Google to um, my master's degree, to my doctoral um, uh, pursuit, where I'm currently uh, pursuing my doctorate in um, the connection between meaningful work and, um, and burnout, um, learning business psychology. But it's been this nonstop journey for me ever since and trying to spread that message and help as many, um, as many leaders and entrepreneurs and, and um, consultants that I can so that they can help as many people as they can so that we can change the face of work and, and reconnect with what it's supposed to be about. It's, it's so inspirational. I really appreciate you kind of sharing that with us. And I hope that more, a lot of people will pay attention to the story which you've just told us there. I remember going into a law firm because um, I used to do some corporate coaching, went into a law firm, 160 plus employees, and they had a staff turnover rate that was something like 25% a year. So they're losing 40 solicitors uh -huh. a year. And um, I, I, uh, 
uh, at the end of it, kind of when I, I asked them if they wanted to roll out the pilot program that we'd done, and we'd actually saved one of the, the girls' jobs. She was in the, in the middle of a crisis. Boyfriend left her, you know, had to move back into her home with her, her mum, crashed a car, all sorts of things just went wrong all at one time. And they were about to performance review her out of the business. And I managed, managed to save her job, but then they were like, oh, what are the costs of this? And it was all kind of about sort of KPIs and measurables and it all came down to money. And that's when I realized that actually my calling, for example, was to work with individuals because when I see my clients be able to save up enough money to go and get married, to um, put down a deposit on a house, to go and get their first office because their business is now scaling and that's what, what they wanted to achieve, you can start to see at grassroots level how much it fills people up. And I think it sounds to me like it was a similar sort of thing when you work when you were working with your employees at the ice cream parlor, you know, and and seeing the positive impact which it had with them. I mean, it's it's great to be able to use that then as a driving force for good for for your own sort of journey as well, like moving forward. So right, and that's and that's the beauty of coaching is that um, Lips Wersma, one of the leading researchers on meaningfulness at work, describes meaningfulness as partially defines it as being completeness or wholeness, right? And so what we do often and what motivates me is that so many people clock into work and out of life. Yeah. Right. So they think I'm going to put in my eight hours today and then I'm going to get back to my life. So what happens? They're putting pause on their own identity, on their own sense of purpose, their own, um, as these clergy would, would describe it, their own mission, their own personal mission. They're pressing pause for eight hours a day, five days a week. And so what happens? We get home and we self-medicate. Because what an awful existence. So some of us get on prescription drugs and and illicit drugs. And some of us, for some of us, it's alcohol. And for some of us, it's food. And for some of us, it's just sitting in front of the television for hours on end until you fall asleep and do it all again the next day. And what are we doing? We're We're just financing our weekend. That's a life. Well, that's it. I mean, you, you never, like everybody says they go to work for the money, but you never actually, the one thing which you go to work for, you never get to keep. Right. You, you go out and you exchange the money for other things, which sometimes might add a little bit of short-term happiness and joy to your life. Other times might not. You know, for, for us, like, we're, you know, as a family, we're all about like, great, let's go and get the money, but let's use that money to create memories. And that's much more important. I'd rather like sell everything in the house and just have, you know, uh, so long as this is still working and we've got some happy memories, that's, that's kind of all we need really, you know, Um, and good times. And I think people lose sight of that. There was a, there's a model which I wanted to share with you. It's something which you, you triggered in me actually earlier on in the the interview. Have you heard about Ikigai? Mm. It's the Japanese model Ikigai, well worth looking into. Yeah. So this is one of the frameworks which we teach in Fearless as well. So Ikigai, it's a Japanese model, which is um, uh, there are four things which kind of go into um, leading a fulfilled life. This is what they they teach in Japan. So um, it's about finding something which you you love, uh, something which the world needs, um, something that you can get paid for, and then something that you're good at. And if you find all four things, you get ikigai. But for example, if you find something that that you love doing and that the world needs, there's a mission behind it. So they all kind of cross over. I'll I'll send you a link to this diagram afterwards. I'm I'm kind of looking at it over here as well. If you find something that the world needs that you can be paid for, it becomes a vocation. If you can find something that you get paid for and you're good at, it becomes a profession. And then if you find something that you're good at and that you love, it becomes something that you're passionate about. 
But obviously, like I said, if you get all four things coming together, you reach that point of ikigai. And the nice thing about it is the, the way it was described to me is that, um, so Japanese people live by ikigai every day. And that <clears throat> if they reach a point whereby they have to retire, um, they'll go out and find something, a profession which replaces their profession. So they'll go out and volunteer at a local you know, special needs school, or they'll go and volunteer at the local church, or they'll go and volunteer at the, the next mission or whatever it might be. So, um, so they always, they're always filling up those four parts with, with, with something. Um, I love that. It's really powerful. And it sounds, there's a lot, which you kind of talked about today, which resonated with that. Yeah. And the only caveat I would put on that is a lot of times you see, especially younger workers, um, you see that they are putting it on pause and waiting. I, you know what would be really meaningful for me to be a movie star. You know, and so they're, they're waiting for that thing. I would argue that you can find meaning in being a trash collector because there is a meaning in that and you can connect with something in that. So one of my very first um, jobs was uh, working in dog kennels and I would be picking up poop in dog kennels. But when I was doing it, I was so engaged because I was keeping the area clean and keeping these animals healthy, helping them, bringing them back to health. So I went, the cleaning process itself was meaningful. I would reach out to the, to the animals and take breaks to pet them and see what they need. The person standing right next to me working alongside me was just picking up poop. You know, that's what they were doing. And so the mindset of finding and job crafting, which is a whole nother podcast, I think, but finding it and job crafting um, and making the job into that thing where you get to fulfill your destiny and be and, and, and impact the world in that way and align with, with meaning and your personal purpose, I think can happen almost anywhere, almost anywhere. You almost. need to find the organization <laughs> with the right values, though. Hundred percent. Listen, we're, we're, we've come we've come to the end of our interview, uh, David. It's been an absolute pleasure um, listening to you speak as well. Very inspirational, very motivational. So thank you for that. Oh, great, thank um, you. You mentioned about the FTF burnout proof culture model, which obviously we'll share a link to um, our list, for our listeners into the show notes as well. How can people get hold of you? Yeah, so they can reach me. Um, my website is www.illuminatepmc.com. An easier way to get there is davidshar.com. Um, and then I'm very active on LinkedIn. So whenever anybody likes to continue a conversation from a podcast like this or from a talk that I give or whatever, I always say LinkedIn is a great place to do that. Private message me there um, and, and we can continue the conversation. Fantastic. Thanks so much for this opportunity. It's a pleasure. I've got one final question for you, which I ask all of my guests. So we're going to hop sure. into the fearless business time machine and uh, like back to the future, you get to punch in which year you want to go back to. So you can tell <laughs> us what year it is, um, but you're going to meet uh, David T minus X number of years. So when would it be? And what would you say to David then? I don't, I don't, I think I would, I think I would pass up the experience of taking the time machine into the past. I tend to live more toward the, almost toward the future. But the reason I wouldn't go back is because I wouldn't want to screw anything up because I think all of my mistakes are what brought me to where I am today. And I think that they are a vital piece of my future. And so I don't think I would go back and change anything, not because my life has been perfect. It hasn't, but because the imperfections in life are part of the perfection of life. 
Lovely. Love that. That's, that's going to take some thinking for, for me to get, <laughs> get my head around a little bit, but I totally understand what you mean there. That's brilliant. Awesome. Thank you, David. It's been an Thank absolute you. pleasure. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. <laughs>